You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. We haven't met before. My name is James Brown. I'm one of the pastors here at Crosspoint, um, primarily Crosspoint song and dance man on Sundays. Jamie, the pastor, who more often than not is up here preaching through God's word, is on vacation this week, so I'll be stepping into the pulpit in his absence. For those of you just joining us, we have been in the book of Colossians for the past six weeks or so, and nearing the end of this sermon series, we call Above All Things. All scripture points to Christ. Christ puts the stamp of approval on this method of interpretation himself. But Colossians is, as it has been stated several times throughout this series, one of the most explicitly Christ-exalting books in scripture. In Paul's letter, he wants the church in Colossae, and thus as well, the continuation of the church, to see Jesus in all of his glory, beauty, and majesty as the preeminent reigning king of heaven and earth, enthroned at the right hand of the Father, who wants also to rule and reign in our hearts. Jamie, in his sermon from last week, uh, used this table, which is up on the screen behind me, to demonstrate how Paul has constructed this letter. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul unpacks these doctrinal truths, uh, our position in Christ, Christian belief, the work of Christ, sound doctrine, and the Christian's identity, orthodoxy, or right thinking. And then in chapters 3 and 4, He explores the more practical side of these things, the outworking of these doctrinal truths, our practice in Christ, Christian behavior, the walk of the Christian, spiritual directives, the Christian's responsibility, or orthopraxy, a fancy way of saying, right doing. Coming out of last week, we looked at what it means to live according to our position in Christ, what it means to put to death the old self, those behaviors that characterize an unregenerate heart, lustful passions, anger, slander, deceitfulness, all of our sinful desires that did not, unfortunately, disappear upon conversion. We fight against these things still, but they do not define us any longer. We are now new creations, Paul says, and should live accordingly, dressed in such a way as befitting our status in Christ, imitating all those characteristics that Jesus perfectly embodies, humility, kindness, compassion, forgiveness, thanksgiving. This is how we're called to live now. In the verses that we'll be looking at this morning, Paul takes it a step further by showing how these attributes of Christian character apply on the ground, specifically in our relationships. That being said, if you turn with me to Colossians 3, verses 18 through 4-1, that's where we're going to be this morning. There should be Bibles in the seats in front of you if you need one. I also have the uh, verses on the screen behind us. Um, And I'm just going to go ahead and read through the whole passage in its entirety before diving into it. Uh, You guys ready? Here we go. Verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Um, so I found it helpful in preparing the sermon that we're going to look at today um, in context of God's grand redemptive narrative, beginning with the creation of all things, the way things were intended to be, God's perfect design, and then moving to the fall, what happened to creation when sin entered the world, severing our relationship with God and poisoning our relationship with others, and then moving into uh, God's plan for Redemption, sending his son to live the perfect, sinless, obedient life that his people could not, to die the death that we deserved and to be resurrected from the grave, conquering sin, Satan, and death and reconciling us to the Father, transforming the hearts of those who believe in him by the power of the Holy Spirit, which has profound implications for the way we relate to one another. And lastly, as Christians, we await the triumphant return of the king who will someday come to restore all things completely, everything sad becoming untrue. But maybe it would be best to begin even before the beginning, what we'll call the prologue here. So even before God created the heavens and the earth, God was existing in three persons. The triune God in harmonious community with himself, engaged in this Trinitarian dance that has always been. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, totally in sync, never an awkward movement, never a mistimed step, just pure poetry in motion. And then an outpouring of this love, unity, and harmony that must be expressed. God speaks things into existence. Sun, moon, stars, land masses, oceans, plants, and animals. And finally, we get to Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation, the only thing created in his image, and God gives them authority and dominion to rule over this creation. Adam, who God creates first, co-labors with God, tending the garden and naming all the animals. But something is missing. Something is not right. Adam feels an indiscernible, unidentifiable longing for what? He doesn't know, but he knows that he is set apart from the other animals. He is different, not like them. Among them, there is no suitable helper. God did not forget something here. This is intentional on his part. His timing is perfect. This is all part of God's plan. He says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so he does. And when Adam sees Eve, the woman, he is filled with an irrepressible need to express with words the ineffable, ineffable beauty of what God has created. And I'll let Adam bring the poetry this week. It says, at last he cries, O bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, at last. And chapter two ends with this verse, one of my favorite in scripture. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I think to understand the good news of the gospel, it helps to understand the way it used to be, lest we think that things are not all that bad here and we come to regard this place as our home. I came across this uh, description of pre-fall life in the garden. Um, it's from Paul David Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, which is a fantastic book. 
And I think it would do us well uh, just to sit with it for a second and allow ourselves to ponder what that must have been like um, to walk with God in this garden. So um, I won't have it on the screen. It's a long passage, but I'll kind of follow along with me. Tripp writes, for a brief period of time, perfect people walked through a perfect world in perfect union with God. The environment was lush and rich with a menagerie of animals that inhabited the air, land and sea. Every physical and spiritual need was fully met. There were no unfed stomachs or diseases to be feared. The gardens were free of weeds and thorns. Man and woman, Adam and Eve, lived in perfect union with each other. There was no unhealthy competition, no power struggle, no vengeance or recrimination. There were no secret plots or harsh words, no fear, guilt, shame, or rebellion against authority. There was understanding, communication, and love. There was no struggle with identity, anxiety, depression, or addiction. There was no painful personal history to overcome. There was no fear of what might happen next, no mixed motives, no struggle with inordinate desire. There was no temptation to sin. With God, too, there was perfect union. People loved, worshipped, and obeyed as they were created to do. In the cool of the day, they actually walked with God in the garden, enjoying perfect fellowship with their maker. They were God's resident managers placed there to govern what he had made, and they did their job well. God had no reason to confront them, and they had nothing to confess. All was right, day after day. Life was better than anything we can imagine from our sin-scarred vantage point. When I allow myself to ruminate on what it was like in the garden, I lament uh, the deep, palpable sadness of the fall, and it creates in me a longing for the return of Christ. So as to get uh, the full effect, we won't skip over it, but just the next chapter over, Genesis 3, one act of rebellion changes everything. Satan, disguised as a serpent, tempts Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit of the tree that God has forbidden them to eat of, lying to them that they will be like God, knowing good from evil. They eat the forbidden fruit, and suddenly guilt and shame enter the picture. Thorns and thistles, they feel naked and exposed, and there's a whole new world of options to choose from. It's no longer just God's word, complete, unquestioning trust, but doubt and autonomy and ruin. And we see sin's far-reaching effects throughout biblical history, like festering sores on a leper of God's creation, Husband and wife become enemies as Adam and Eve blame each other for the sin. It was all that bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh talk, am I right? And it takes an immediate toll on their offspring as Cain murders his brother Abel, and one generation after the next experiences endless strife. Noah curses his son Ham for walking in on him during a strange uh, naked drunken revelry, and then Ham goes and tells his brothers about it. Sarah urges Abraham to sleep with their servant Hagar in an attempt to expedite God's promise for a child, which is born, and she feels resentment towards them all in the aftermath. Isaac and Rebekah pick favorites between Jacob and Esau. Jacob and his wife, or wives, I should say, father 12 sons, and not learning anything from his past experience, also selects his favorite in Joseph, who was resented by his brothers. So they fake his death and sell him into slavery, and on and on and on. And God says in some very disturbing passages from Deuteronomy 28, you shall eat of the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you. It's a long, long way down. Now, who will put an end to this? Who will save us from ourselves? Who will reverse this curse? Many rended garments later, and the answer to the question is 
born, and we'll sing of this in just a few short weeks when we celebrate Advent and the coming of our Messiah, the birth of Christ. He is the one, the one foretold in Genesis 3, who crushes the serpent's head, the light and the darkness, our Prince of Peace, whose mercy extends from generation to generation. He has come to set the kingdom right, to restore what was lost, providing a way back to the Father, creating a new people for himself. And his spirit dwells inside of them as we are called to dwell with one another in peace and unity and love. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, it says in Isaiah 58, 12. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. God's kingdom is beautiful. God's design is perfect. A quick analogy before... We get back into Colossians. I have a car, uh, two, actually. I know what you're thinking. This guy must be balling out of control. Nobody has two cars. Yeah, I do. Um, so us pastors roll two cars. To be honest, one of these two cars was given to me by my mother-in-law, um, and we were a one-car family for a long time. You guys don't care. Well, I have a point to all of this. As far as these cars go, I know very little about them. When there's a problem, like some unusual noise, or maybe the car won't start, I do what I think I'm supposed to do, that's what I've seen other people do, and I pop the hood. Um, I'm not really sure why. Short of finding some uh, dead animal, or like a gremlin in there with a hammer banging on things, like in that Bugs Bunny cartoon, um, something that is obviously not supposed to be there. I couldn't tell you one thing from the next. I I don't know what's wrong, it just looks like a big mess to me. But I do, I think, grasp the basics of the car's intended purpose. For instance, I've found that my car runs best when I drive it on paved roads. Um, they're all over. I, I took one to get here, in fact. I've never done this, but I'm pretty sure that if I tried to drive this car on any other terrain, like a lake, for instance, that it wouldn't do as well. I just have a feeling <laughs> it was not designed to navigate these aquatic environments. If I did attempt this, I'm pretty sure that it would ruin the car at the very least, and worst case scenario, I could drown and die. My point is this, the car was not designed to be driven a certain way, or it was designed to be driven a certain way, and it would be foolish, not to mention dangerous for me to experiment with this, just as it would be foolish and dangerous for us to presume that we could improve upon God's plans for marriage or family, or what it means to walk and work unto the Lord. Which leads me now to the beauty and wisdom of what Paul is unpacking in these verses in Colossians 3, 18 through 4, 1. Um, He gives these six concise imperatives coupled together in these three categories. Husbands and wives, children and their parents, slaves and their masters, uh, which is even uncomfortable to say out loud. And we're going to dive into that passage just so you know. We're going to treat that one separately from the others. I do think the breakdown of these verses as a collective whole makes sense. Uh, There is a logical cohesion to Paul's thought process here in this particular section. However, the application piece of it, as it pertains to 3.21 through 4.1, considering the content, must be treated differently. So we'll put a pause on that, and we're going to dive into verses 18 through 21. Um, As for these verses, I'm going to approach it like this, so you know. I'll begin by drawing some broad conclusions about these passages as a whole, and then move into more specific takeaways from each imperative individually. Um, let me, I'm going to read these again just to refresh our memory, and then we'll, we'll keep on trucking. <clears throat> Back in verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. 
Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Uh, so I think it'll go a long way in framing these passages if we understand that primarily Paul is talking about a vertical alignment as opposed to a horizontal one. This is not, again, primarily about how husbands and wives relate to one another or parents to their kids, but about how we relate to God the Father through his Son. Notice the language Paul uses here. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. When wives submit biblically to their imperfect husbands, this mirrors, in some sense, their submission to our Heavenly Father, who is perfect. Kids, when you obey your parents, who are imperfect, believe it or not, you are also submitting to your Heavenly Father, who is perfect. Obedience to Him is what matters most. God's approval is what we should be seeking in these things. He is the architect and the assigner of these roles. We are called to trust in His perfect design, if he doesn't build the house, to quote Psalm 127, we labor in vain and our efforts are meaningless. Um, all right, with these next two, I wasn't sure which one to go with first, but I, I just picked one. Um, however, I think they kind of round each other out. Um, in regards to submission and obedience, I think it must be said, this does not mean that we are called to endure abuse of any kind. They are not remotely the same thing. What Paul is talking about here is something beautiful and constructive, whereas abuse, be it psychological or emotional or physical, is evil and destructive and diametrically opposed to God's vision for our families. If you're in an abusive relationship, I feel led to say, reach out to me or Jamie or another brother or sister in the church for help. I believe that Christ can redeem even these things, but it is not healthy to stay in them, so they're people here for you. Just know that. Furthermore, submission and obedience do not mean that we acquiesce to anything immoral or illegal. God's word is superior. Our allegiance, going back to the previous point, is first and foremost to him. That being said, uh, ruling out those things that are categorically abusive, illegal, or immoral, you'll notice that, and this makes the practice of these things all the more difficult Faithfulness in one area is not contingent upon faithfulness in another. For example, whether or not I feel like my wife is submitting to my spiritual leadership does not change the fact that I'm called to love her and cherish her. Conversely, if she feels like I am not loving or leading the family well, she is still called to support and encourage me in the ways that I'm attempting to lead. Likewise, when I feel like my kids are out of control or they're not listening to anything I have to say, or they're ceaselessly, ceaselessly arguing with one another. And from the room, I hear something to the effect of, Jasper, stop biting my bed. Okay, that's it. And uh, when I go in there to investigate, I discover, sure enough, uh, two members of my own species in, <laughs> engaged in some sort of strange act of defiance, uh, teeth clenched around one another's mattresses. <clears throat> True story. Not exactly sure how to make sense of what I'm seeing and still undetected, I would prefer to quietly creep back out the way I came and have Marilyn deal with this. <laughs> but all the same, I'm called to lovingly discipline them in a way that doesn't cause them to lose heart, but that speaks the gospel into their lives, however that applies to this weird situation, and just as they are called to obey me and their mother, even when we grow frustrated or lose our tempers. Um, 
That's really the only way this works. What Paul is describing here is only possible if we surrender our wills to God's, asking the Holy Spirit to help us live this out. The alternative is everyone waits for the other person to do what we think they're supposed to do before we fulfill our end of the bargain, and this results in some kind of stalemate and ultimately a dysfunctional household. Lastly, I wanted to acknowledge that maybe some of you are hearing this and saying, well, what about my situation? This doesn't really seem to describe my family dynamic. Or those who are raising kids, I know, as single parents here, or have blended families, or perhaps are fostering kids, or maybe you're estranged from your family. There are situations that come about as a result of our sin, or having been sinned against, or just the unforeseen things that happen because we live in a fallen world. And Paul in these passages presents somewhat of an ideal, but uh, take comfort in knowing that whatever your situation might look like, Christ died so that your family could be a functional, thriving, living testimony for his glory, that even if this picture here doesn't resemble your particular family dynamic, God sees you, God loves you, and he wants to redeem your family in Christ. On the specifics here, um, we'll start with what is meant to be uh, the most intimate of relationships that Paul's detailing, that of husbands and wives. I wanted to elaborate a little bit more on this idea of biblical submission. I, uh, I know this is a word that is a hang-up for a lot of people, and certainly it's a concept that has been misused and misapplied, and I hate this because submission is not a bad thing. We are called to submit in a number of areas in our lives, as Sam Storms was helpful to point out in his commentary, not just wives to their husbands or children to their parents, but believers to the elders of the church, Hebrews 13, 17, citizens to the state, Romans 13, each believer to every other believer in humble service, Ephesians 5, 21, and Christ himself submitted to the will of the Father, John 6, 38. So if he does this, it can't be a bad thing. Is in fact a good thing and a necessary thing at times. That being said, I still think it's helpful to be clear about what submission is not. First off, it has nothing to do with skill set, who is smarter or more capable. There are a great many things that my wife does better than I do. And some of them are things that I thought, as a man, I should do well. It's been a freeing thing to realize that I don't have to be all these things. God has given me a wife, and I can learn uh, or lean on her areas of strength and expertise in a way that helps our house to run better. Secondly, submission does not mean that the wife has to agree or go along with every decision or suggestion that her husband makes, or that she doesn't provide criticism lovingly, constructively. It does not mean that she gives up creative endeavors or personal interests or that she cannot do things apart from him. And by no means is this an indication of value as it pertains to any of these specific titles, men, women, children, irrespective of race, culture, or socioeconomic status, we are equals in God's kingdom. Look back at Colossians 3.11, which we just studied last week for further confirmation of this. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And all of this, of course, implies that the husband is not leading in a harsh, domineering, or abusive way. So this is not what it looks like. It begs the question, 
What does it look like for a wife to practice biblical submission and for a husband to lead his family? Because I couldn't come up with a better definition, though I tried. I'm going to lean on the wisdom of Sam Storms again because I think he says it well. He describes submission in this context as a commitment to support one's husband in such a way that he may reach his full potential as a man of God. If we move to verse 19, as Paul addresses the husbands, I think we gain further insight here. He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. But in order to understand the kind of love Paul is talking about here, we have to go to the parallel verse in Ephesians 5.25, which says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is no fleeting love that Paul is describing. This is no easy love the kind of love expressed on little heart-shaped candies that you get for Valentine's Day. This is committed love. This is sacrificial love. This is the way that Jesus loves. This is also the way that Jesus led, the same way that we are called to lead our wives and our families as selfless servants and fierce protectors of the truth to uphold what is beautiful and good and right, to encourage and cherish our wives to be the first to pick up our cross and the first to die to ourselves. Doesn't sound too sexy when you put it that way, does it? (laughs) In light of this, the wife's role then can be restated as the one who helps her husband die. Ladies and entrepreneurs among you, there's a great idea for a line of t-shirts and coffee mugs there, I'm sure. (laughs) I help my husband die. (laughs) As I said before, the wife's faithfulness in her role is not contingent upon the husband's faithfulness in his and vice versa, but there's definitely something reciprocal and symbiotic at work here. When a husband leads by exhibiting a Christ-like love for his wife, I've seen this, she will want to joyfully support him in this. And when a wife joyfully supports and encourages her husband to lead, he will desire to lead in such a way. The same is true with our relationships with our children. By the way, let's put the verse back up here, verse 21. The word fathers used in verse 21 is the same Greek word used in Hebrews 11 for parents. So both mother and father would apply in this case. It's not like the mother is free to discourage her kids to be both. Parents, when we lovingly discipline our children who need our guidance, not uh, out of our insecurities or some idolatrous desire for comfort or control, let's say become discouraged, but for the purpose of restoring them, which is what discipline is for, then I have to trust, though we may not see this immediately, that this will in turn produce uh, our kids to have a desire to obey and not just some form of behavior modification, but as a sincere and heartfelt response because they trust us and they know what we want for them is best in Christ. At least that's how it's supposed to work. I see it and I believe it and I want it. But being married and raising kids is the hardest thing we'll ever do. Um, arguably one of the most rewarding, but, but it is hard. This is the solid food of the gospel that Paul is feeding us here. Only by the grace of God can we pull it off. All right, moving on to verse 22. Um, There's no real seamless way to transition from one section to the next here, and, and maybe that's okay because Paul really doesn't do this either. I'll go ahead and read it again before we jump back into it. It says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord 
and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. From the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. All right, so the reason I wanted to consider these verses uh, on slave-master relationships separately from those on husbands and wives and parents and their children is because there is not a perfect one-for-one correspondence here. We cannot simply plug in a familiar and more palatable 21st century experience between employees and their employers in this case. It's not really the same thing. Whereas marriage and the family unit were God-ordained institutions in the garden, these things having been defined and established with Adam and Eve, slavery is not, perhaps it goes without saying, but slavery was not at all a part of God's original plan. Slavery is the result of the fall. It's a vile, repugnant institution that grieves God. Who is for the marginalized and the oppressed? It was wrong in Paul's day when he was writing this. It is wrong now. That being said, I believe God's word has something to teach us about who he is, who we are, and what it means to live as Christians in a fallen world with the hope of the gospel. We do not skip over topics, even uncomfortable ones like this. I'm grateful because there are some really sweet truths to tease out of it. Um, It's important to note also that Paul, uh, in writing this, is not condoning slavery. He is not turning a blind eye to the atrocities of slavery. In fact, in next week's passage, we'll be looking at a real-life example of how the gospel speaks into this uh, with Onesimus and Philemon. I won't get into that today, but for now, I believe that Paul wants us to see how the gospel of Jesus Christ speaks into even the most awful of situations. And when we examine these passages, I think we find that they are indeed saturated in hope. In the passages of marriage and children, Paul is describing a vertical alignment here. This is not simply about bond servants finding favor with their masters. This is about Colossians 3.17, what it says there, whatever we do in word and deed, do unto the Lord. He is our master, capital M, the master of slaves and their masters without partiality. And he is good and he is just and he sees. This is meant to be an encouragement to those In this most unfortunate position, God doesn't just see, he takes note. He keeps account. There is a real inheritance, Paul is saying, an eternal reward. The slaves that Paul addresses here were not allowed to own anything. They are at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, but not in the kingdom, right? Not in heaven, not in eternity. They have names and they have faces, and God knows who they are. Something else I wanted to say about this passage, and... um, This is difficult. I don't pretend that it's not. Paul understands that true and lasting change comes from the heart. In a fallen world where men, women, and children can be owned and bought and sold, how do we change this? Not through legislation, I don't think, or protest or any sort of legal action. Although those things are good and right and fine, we desire that the law of the land would reflect the righteousness and holy things that God loves but they do not change the human heart. Only the gospel can do that and transform our communities from the inside out. This is what Paul was interested in here. As someone who kept the law to a T, who knew it front and back, and yet on the inside, who was full of dead bones, 
It wasn't until an encounter with the risen Christ who knocked him off his horse, blinding him in the process that he finally saw. Once a slave to the law, now a slave to Christ, he addresses himself as such in many of his letters. As an application piece for us, I'll say this much. If the gospel has something to say about relationships between masters and slaves, then certainly it could speak into any other work-related situation that we might find ourselves in. Work is not bad. Work is not the consequence of the fall. Work was part of God's original plan and original design for us. Whether we're underpaid or feel that we are or in a dead-end job or have some unreasonable boss, Paul can call these slaves to work unto, unto the Lord, then how much more so us? As I said before, this is, um, this is hard stuff. Paul is building on the foundational milk, so to speak, of the gospel and now moving us on to solid food. That's one thing to talk about, putting on the new self. It is quite another to live out that in our relationships. Uh, if the sermon feels inadequate, that's because it is. There are entire books written about what I've attempted to unpack over the last 35 minutes. Um, but let's continue to talk about these things. I'm encouraged to see what will happen in our community groups as different people speak on these things. Um, and we encourage one another to be faithful in God's perfect design for our relationships and just to see what he does in that. I wanted to end this on an encouraging note. Um, and uh, as we look ahead to Christ's glorious return, the second advent, when we will um, finally be restored, all things um, will stand before him. Uh, his spotless bride, his church, no more bickering or fighting or toiling or jockeying for position or struggling to love one another. We will be the redeemed family of God, simply put, living in perfect unity and peace with our king. I, I love this passage from Revelation 21. Three through four, I'm going to read this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C.com.